Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast. I'm Dave Sharp, Marketing Consultant for Architects at VanityProjects.com. The Fulcrum Agency and I would like to start off this episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Today, I'm joined by Emma Williamson and Emma Brain from the Fulcrum Agency, a design consultancy focused on social architecture. Emma Williamson co-founded the agency with her partner Kieran Wong after 20 years running Coda Studio, an architecture practice based in Perth. Emma Brain, who also came from the previous studio, is Fulcrum's head of communications. The studio has team members around the country and their projects are in some of the remotest parts of Australia where they provide research, strategy, community co-production and architectural design to help address some of Australia's most important social issues. In this episode, we discussed how their new business model provides advantages over the traditional architectural practice. We examine the different services they've developed to address the unique needs of the communities that they work with. We also discuss the importance of building trusting and long-lasting relationships with like-minded clients and how their written content helps them to do it. We took a closer look at how this content is produced from their annual print journal to their regular points of view blog posts and their Instagram posts. And finally, we spoke about how other architects can begin to figure out their point of view, put their values out there, and why it's important to do that if you want to find high quality clients. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Emma Williamson and Emma Brain from the Fulcrum Agency. Emma Williamson and Emma Brain from Fulcrum Agency, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot, thank Dave. You. Thanks for having us. It's very exciting to talk to both of you. Um, and I'm I thought maybe we'd start off with a bit of an overview of the Fulcrum Agency and the work that you're doing and the sorts of projects that you're working on at the moment. Sure. Well, maybe I'll start with that, Em, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the Fulcrum Agency, well, we're pretty new. We're about two and a half years old um, or young. And uh, we've started out um, with a pretty narrow focus on the type of work that we wanted to do. And we've been really successful in being able to um, work with the sorts of clients we've been seeking out. So our clients range from um, government agencies, community organisations, um, Aboriginal corporate corporations, tertiary institutions and private developers. Um, and we're really working at the front end of projects largely um, to start to give um, advice and assist with our built environment expertise on developing briefs, but with a particular focus around um, having an Indigenous voice incorporated into those. Um, and then when we work with Indigenous corporations, we're actually wor working across the full spectrum of work from everything from strategy and master planning uh, through to project delivery, project management, design. And what would some examples of sort of typical projects that you're doing at the moment, like wh maybe where are they to give people an idea? We've also got sort of international listeners as well, but um, I see photos all over the website of you guys jumping on little planes and yeah. kind of really going. So maybe just a little bit of context around those sorts of projects and the communities that you're interacting with with your projects. Uh, yeah, well, I try not to look at those pictures of people on the little planes because mostly that's my husband and I get really stressed out. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the planes look but, a little too little, right? I just, there's a point where I just don't want to know about it. But yeah. um, no, there are. So we've got, we actually have an office in Sydney and we've got an office in Perth. Most people 
um, in the practice of based in Perth, in Fremantle, um, so on the west coast of Australia. And our work is everywhere from the far north of Australia. Groot Island is a place that we've done a lot of work, um, but also in um, in the Northern Territory around um New South Wales, Brisbane, um, and in regional WA. So we do work in urban contexts, but a lot of our work is actually with remote um, communities as well. I'm curious about this idea of the agency and the change that occurred over the last few years. I mean, prior to Fulcrum Agency, um, Coda Studio, I think 20, uh, roughly 20 years that that you were that studio and that was yeah. kind of more, I guess, more of a sort of traditional architecture firm model or architecture practice in a way. Um, and the new model with the agency, I mean, apart from the name change and the fo- the different kind of focus, I, I suppose, what, what are some of the other sort of structural differences between being Fulcrum Agency versus being Coda Studio? Well, I'd start by saying actually what is similar and what mm. is similar or the same is that we've got the exact same values that we had when we had Coda Studio as we have now with the Fulcrum Agency. But what we decided when um, we decided that we were going to set up this practice is that we wanted to create something that was much more nimble uh, than we felt we could do with a traditional architecture practice. And we'd been through that 20 plus years of practice of, of the machine that requires you to deliver the full service that starts with the, you know, the brief and the idea and, you know, and you end up with a, with um, a kind of cross section of staff that you need who need to be expert in various different things, whether that's documentation or delivery or conceptualization. And then you end up with the machine that needs feeding. So you're just constantly in this race to try and get work to keep feeding the machine. And really what we felt was that there was an opportunity for us to focus, think a little bit more closely about where we could add the greatest value and I think in some respects let go a little bit of our the ego, the architect's ego that's connected with drawing the the idea and mm. then building that and actually think of ourselves as just being one part of a whole process that is trying to improve the built environment. So rather than looking at an individual building, starting to think a little bit more big picture about how we could have broadened that influence. Um, And so for us, the idea of um, using the word agency, I guess, has to do with lots of different things. But one is to think about um, the business model that they use in advertising agencies and the kind of way that those structures are set up for speed and delivery, um, but also to think of yourself as a change agent. Um, you know, there's lots of different ways that we could think about it. And um, Emma, I don't know if you've got some opinions about that because you were on board for the CODA journey and mm-hmm. the Fulcrum Agency and you've done our comms for all of that time as well as many other mm. things. But what that meant, what do you see there? I really like it. I mean, for me it's sort of it's an exciting term because it, it I like that you can tap into other people's expertise outside the practice, that we're not just reliant on the intel within the practice. Um, for me, I think 
the journal, which we'll probably talk about in detail yeah. a bit further down the line, is a great example of that. It really is a collaboration between the Fulcrum Agency and Block Branding. You know, I I also I've always liked the fact that, you know, if we've got some heavy drafting load on that we might go out and see what other young but really talented architects might be able to support us. We don't just rely on who we've got in the practice. And that makes it just a much more interesting and dynamic way to work, I think. And I think it also is creating, sorry, Dave, like this this environment where everyone in the practice is becoming an expert. Mm. Mm. And I really like that feeling. Mm. Like there's a high level of competency in our staff. How does the structure help them to develop that extra competency, do you think? What, well, what is it about it? I think it's because they have to really dive in deep and they're becoming expert on a much narrower um, band of work mm. and that as because there's not a structure, because the practice is small mm. and we're maintaining our team, they're becoming more and more expert and then we're sort of outsourcing and partnering and collaborating in a way that means that they're, you know, they're getting a lot of exposure to a lot of different ways of working and and environments, but they're bringing that back and it's being retained inside the practice. It's interesting. So that idea of that narrowness um, and how you're positioning that, you've kind of broadened your service range in a way, like built environment is now just one of sort of five or six different capabilities that are listed on your website. You've also sort of expanded your project range in a way because you're kind of all over Australia now and you're working in all these types of problems, I suppose. But Mm. where is the narrowness in there? Because there is a narrowness, but how do you sort of look at it? There is a specialization of some sort, but um, where is that happening? And I guess what do you kind of look at as, you, you know, this is fulcrum agencies, like this is our sweet spot. This is what we really are the people for. Yeah, well, I think it's a good point, Dave, and I had, I think you've articulated it well because I think that it is true that we've broadened our service in many respects, but it also means that we've shifted so that our projects are much shorter and sharper. So where we might get, you know, in the old olden days, old practice, yeah. um, we might have got a project and then that was going to be on our books for the next three years. We might have a project now and it might turn itself around in six weeks mm. or three months because we're just helping in those initial conceptualization stages of setting the project up for another architectural practice to actually come in and do the design and delivery. Mm. So we're not, we're not, I guess, position the big shift is that we're not positioning ourselves as design architects. We're yeah. positioning ourselves as built environment experts um, who, who really I guess we see ourselves as having a role to play in creating the best possible environment for the best possible built environment outcome to occur and that that will occur because there's lots and lots of really clever architects who can do that work. But actually what they need is they need the setup to to be done correctly in the beginning 
And added on to that, I guess you could say, is for us is this very strong sense that really the narrowness, I guess, comes from this wanting to spend um, our time and energy dealing with some of the larger issues that we we have in Australian society. And for us, that comes down, you know, often to this inequity of Indigenous Australians. Um, and how can, as an architect, how can we contribute to that positively? Is there a way? And that's, that is really um, a process of discovery. You know, we're on that journey. We are, we are still, you know, working that out. And did you sort of feel that the way to have the biggest impact in those particular issues and in that inequality was to work sort of more at that front end, smaller project lengths? And, and, and guys, I guess like a bigger quantity of problems or projects, right? I'm assuming rather than getting down sort of lost in the weeds on a particular building and spending, you know, 16 months, 18 months, whatever, just going through that process. There's a sort of limit to what you can do, I suppose. Is that how you sort of think about it in a way that it's expanding the kind of range of things that you can have an impact on? Yeah, I think there's two modes that we work in. So we might work, for example, you know, I mentioned before that we work with developers and in that instance we might have a very short, sharp interaction which is talking about a particular series of opportunities and considerations for a specific development that they have in mind. So um, giving them what we call a primer um, which starts to sort of lay out the groundwork for consideration. So that's something where we would come, you know, we come in and then we go out. But actually we have very long relationships with Aboriginal corporations that go for many years and the range of our services there can mean that we are turning our attention to everything like project managing the the um, compliance around the retrofitting of demountable buildings from um you know from mine site accommodation to appropriate accommodation in communities we might design a um you know a sports Um, facility, we might assist them with their housing. So all of those, and I guess what's important to us there and what really, where we get the most, where we can offer the most value and where we also learn the most is through this long-term relationship and this trust building. Mm. So it's, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all and I think that that's where we get the most amount of benefit. And where we build up that expertise, you know, where the staff have that expertise in, you know, there are some staff who are expert in um, consultation Mm. in Aboriginal communities. I mean, they're really, really very good at it now. Yeah. And because of that sort of repetition and getting so many opportunities to do that. Interesting. We'll touch on communicating all of this in a second, and that's where I'm going to get Emma B to step in big time on this one. But um, I'm, you touched on ego for a second there and kind of dropping that architect's ego in a way or overcoming that that sense of I kind of want to be the a design, design the thing and then get the recognition for that design and, and all that sort of that process that we have in the industry for recognising good work and how we talk about the work that we do. 
And at some point you sort of stepped aside from that as a practice and went, you know, that's not necessarily what we're here to do. That must have been philosophically an interesting kind of um, moment of going, we're going in this different direction now and that's it. We're committing to that. Um, I guess maybe, do you have any thoughts on this idea of what role ego plays in, I guess, architects possibly holding themselves back from being more experimental with how they how they construct their services and who they work with and what they work on. Um, Cause you, it feels like you've had this sort of attitude of going, we're just going to risk it. We're going to do something different. Um, but do you have any kind of thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that it is, it is, um, it was tricky to, to, um, to confront. Like I think what I found tricky was the realization that I, a lot of my identity was connected to the my visibility and mm. my visibility was connected to the work of my practice. So I definitely didn't do all of the work, but because it was CODA was, you know, our Kieran and my practice, we got a lot of constant little um you know, dopamine yeah. hits for people <laughs> saying positive things about our work and our practice and, you know, we were invited to do this and do that. And and then we moved into this mode of invisibility and it was interesting to realise actually there isn't, there, you know, there's no um, award system that says, this project manager over here who is the who studied architecture has completely enabled this fantastic building without this person this building would not be possible all the credit goes to the you know the architect let's say although the architect would probably argue that it goes everywhere else you know but there's there's not there isn't a mechanism in architecture and i think it is the problem that architecture has in having traction broadly is it doesn't celebrate the diversity of the profession. It actually celebrates a very, very narrow band and that is all based on like design outcome. And there's many other complex parts of that. So I think that, you know, it just maybe coincided with us with a kind of our age, like a that kind of midlife crisis identity moment of just saying, well, actually maybe that's not as important as the Mm. other work that we could do and the other way and the way in which we could spend our time and making an impact. Actually delivering a really good building is so hard. I just cannot, I mean, my hat goes off to anyone who can do it because there are so many obstacles in the way of that. And, you know, you could you could also, I could also say to you that I just don't have the energy for that. So I would, you know, part of it was how can we actually do, still do really good, interesting, meaningful work on complex projects, but not have spent five years down the rabbit hole of one project and at the end feel completely demoralised because of all the missed opportunities. I mean, that's the kind of depressing other side. So I think, yeah, I think that it's finding that balance and and being having that inner 
sense of making an impact, I guess, and not relying on the mechanisms that the profession have to celebrate you because they don't, once you move away from design <clears throat> architecture, there isn't really anything. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, I guess, when Fulcrum Agency emerged and you initially start introducing yourself to the world and getting the attention of potential clients and all of that sort of thing. Um, I guess like as a score out of 10, what was the level of confusion around what Fulcrum Agency was or is? <laughs> it's quite <laughs> Quite I think high. it was quite okay. high. <laughs> I think, and I think it took us a while to work out internally how to communicate what we were. I mean, I know it took me a while because I, you know, had been with Coda a long time. I think um, I'd certainly I'd done my long service leave. So I, you know, and I mean, Coda was a fantastic, interesting practice, but it was traditional in the sense the way we spoke about ourselves and we spoke about our work. Um, so then I jumped into Fulcrum and I suddenly thought, mm, well, we, we don't have any projects and we don't have and any projects that are in the pipeline. Uh, they're not buildings that I'm going to send Peter Bennett's to photograph. <laughs> yep. So what am I going to do? <laughs> and it yep. took, I reckon it took me a well over a year to really feel confident about the way in which we express ourselves and the things that we talk about. So, yeah, I think, I think yeah, it did take a while. And people, it's only, I reckon, been in the last few months that people connected to the industry have stopped saying to me, so what are you? I think oh, now we I apologise for doing that then. <laughs> no, no. No. Yeah, so yeah. it's been interesting. We've, we've had to work hard um to 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 nail that and i and i think i don't think that's a bad thing i think it's good it, to keep questioning and exploring what you are and thinking about new ways to express that yeah i mean it, i think we it's been 2 years really i i, mm. I agree with you eb i think it's been only in the last few months that everyone has got this almost like okay so this is what we're doing mm. even in our own practice and actually recently um we just finished, Kieran and I just finished a um, six or eight-week um, strategic advisory um, bit of consultancy work that we engaged someone, um, a, a, a business called Fourfold that had been um, recommended to us by Jeremy McLeod. Mm -hmm. And um, and. I guess I was really attracted to that because I felt like we'd spent the first two years just like running almost like, okay, this is what we're doing. But then I was like, actually, I just want to take some time and think about what are we doing and how are we going to, how will that play out in the next five years? And how does that, how does that reflect? you know, just that classic stuff, you know, what is the client mix? Do we want to inc dial this one up and this one down? Where do we get the most pleasure? What does the team do? How are they, you know, tuned into what's happening? And I think, it, you know, it really, for me, it was a necessary moment where we've just taken that, that breath, I guess, to think about what does this, all of this work that we've done in the last two years mean for the future and it has coincided I think with 
with a general sense of understanding because it wasn't clear because we also didn't mm. know what work we were got. So we had an aspiration, but we also needed to run a business. So yeah. we didn't really – sometimes you take on a project and it's not it's not on the bullseye of where you want to go but it's on one of those outer rings of the of the kind of dartboard and you think, okay, well, you just do it. And then an opportunity – anyway, so it's been good. So the initial projects that you picked up as Fulcrum Agency, um, was that a situation where those clients were sort of advertising their problems and going, we need help with this uh, through maybe like a tender process or something like that, then you entered that or applied to that or was – or was it the other way around that they actually understood so well what you could do for them that they came to you and said, I want X, Y, and Z? Or is it kind of in the middle where they came to you and said, you look really interesting. I love what you're doing. I don't exactly know what you can do to help me. Let's mm. discuss. Is it kind of which of those options tended to be, I suppose, more common uh, well, over the last two years? We came, to, we came to Fulcrum with a couple of big clients already. Um, one of them was... Um, all the work that we were doing on Groot. And so that was a long-term relationship and that really, that project really continued to um, fuel our enthusiasm for working with Indigenous communities. And we were also the state advisor on the uh, new museum in WA, mm. which we'd been working on for about seven years. So that also was a really interesting um busy, fulfilling project. And then from there, a few, you know, one of our key clients that we have now, another Indigenous organisation, we, um, a friend of ours who has a practice in Broome was really busy and she couldn't go and um, work on this boarding college. So could we go and do it? It was like a small thing. Um, we said, yeah, look, we'll, we'll meet with them, we'll go and do it. So we started, but then actually they say, oh, could you do this? Yeah, sure, we can do that. Oh, could you do that? And so the relationship's really grown. But what we've realised in that process is that these corporations, they don't have one problem or one building that they need solving. They have got so many issues that they need and they're under-resourced. So they might need help on, you know, one suggestion was that we might project manage the upgrade of a sewer Mm. Not glamorous, Dave. No. <laughs> it's shitty work, but someone has to do it. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's something that we're totally prepared to do because really it's about the relationship and about improving the built environment of people living in community. And that is not, uh, we can't be specific about that. That is a whole broad range of issues and we need to be able to help however we can. So I think there's also um, another side which has been the way that we try and attract uh, clients through our communications though. So that's where we sort yeah. of go out with our wacky comms uh, strategies <laughs> and and see what lands by doing that. We'll talk comms. I just have a quick question on that idea of the sewer. So we get the sewer project. Yeah. Um, what's the next step for you in terms of a project like that? Because you're not going through, you're not following the classic kind of architectural blueprint. So, you know, feasibility, concept design, design mm. development. You're not doing that process, that five, six step mm. thing. 
do you have a have you invented a new process or change something that's sort of a do you have you developed something that's kind of like that sort of repeatable or do you how do you see your toolkit that you bring to projects when you're first sitting down with a problem and going okay where do we begin in terms of working through this is it community consultation is it like how do you kind of go about tackling well, the issues that's exactly that I think that's exactly how we do it so we'll say okay what is this project type is this community consultation because there's a toolkit for that is this strategic advisory because there's a toolkit for that is this project management because we'll follow that process is this design yeah. you know built environment design and so we just try and make sure in the beginning that each time we have a project we recognize it for the project type that it is and we don't try and apply one of our other <laughs> tools right. to it so we try and have some discipline and that's been interesting because you know we started our practice with a whole lot of people who had been with us at coda and they came as we did from traditional architectural design background mm. And so we've all had to embark on a process of creating new disciplines and new skills around the way that we tackle projects. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, starting with the communication stuff, this idea of are you positioning yourself, like in, in terms of who your competitors are in a way, like in, a, in that sense, do, is it, it's probably no longer other architecture firms, right? Like you're not directly competing with architects. Who are you competing with now? Are there like I'm not aware of what who the indus what industry exists to serve these issues? Um, but are there similar businesses, or are they consultants? Are they advisors? Are they strategists? Like who are the people who would have traditionally come in and helped with these issues? Um, and and are they your competitors now and going forward? Um, I, I can jump in and answer yeah, that. I think they're, yep. they're typically, from what I can see, management consultant type businesses mm. and things that the big practices like PwC. Um, so it was interesting when we started to look at building a, at the website for Ful the Fulcrum Agency, Kieran, you know, we wanted to do something interesting and that was not like a typical architect's website and the websites we were drawn to with the websites of sort of management consultant type yep. businesses and characters. Um, so, yes, I guess in a sense they are our competitors, but they're also the sorts of businesses that we work with as well. Mm. So they tap in, you know, they bring skills in economics, um, you know, economic strategy that we don't have. So a lot of the work we do now is in collaboration with them. So I guess we don't, I, I don't really ever think about our competitors in a way that yeah. I certainly would have, at Coda, I could have listed five practices that we knew would be on the tender list and, you know, that we'd think, well, what can we do differently to them? What's different about Fulcrum is that we probably think, well, how can we collaborate? What skills have they got that we need and vice versa, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's really interesting. And also do you think, Em, because we've got the built environment expertise, that makes us a little bit different so yes. and then sometimes I think well maybe our competitors you know depending on the project might be a project manager yeah and then another time it might be KPMG because it's strategic advisory and then it, you yeah. know so the competitors will change but I think it's really true what you're saying is that they're also our collaborators often 
Yep, exactly. And, and that's because you're highly differentiated from them that you don't directly compete with them anyway because you've got this sort of moat of built environment experience around your mm. practice, mm. but you've also separated yourself from architects by not offering the same service mix that architects typically mm. offer. Um, mm. So it's really interesting. You found this, there's like a Venn diagram that crosses over between architects and consultants and then you're like the only practice in the middle of that overlap, really. Or there, yeah. there, aren't, there aren't so many, but do you see it as kind of a little bit of maybe maybe uh, other uh, architecture practices may not have dived in quite as wholeheartedly um, as, as yeah. you guys, but do you, do you are you sort of aware of other examples or other instances where architects are taking maybe this more design thinking or strategic um they're, they're, they're sort of developing those new services or doing things, they're innovating in that. Are you, do you see examples of that that um, kind of come to mind or um, are you just basically lone wolves at, in, in terms of this approach at the moment? I think that there are other examples and I think that there's particularly around the community consultation stuff. Mm. I think that there's other architects who are starting to get into that space or and there are also other consultants who are starting to come into that space where architects could sit you know more architects yeah. space for more architects there um i think one thing that we haven't really talked about though is the role like the like the fact that we also seek to collaborate with indigenous partners um, mm. and that's really important because a lot of the work it's not um, an issue when we're working for Indigenous organisations but once we start to work outside of that and we're working for tertiary institutions or for government and so forth it's really important that we have Indigenous partners um, so that we're not speaking on behalf of um, people for which we have absolutely no authority. So um, that is for us has been a real opportunity, but it's also been a real challenge um, because it's, you know, just finding people who are not already completely overwhelmed with work yeah. who are wanting to get involved in another project has been really tricky for us. Yeah. So that's that for us is something that's, you know, we're really still needing to work on. Interesting. Let's talk about your content because you do create a lot of it. Um, and I guess coming back to your website a little bit, um, I, so Kieran had this thought on not being like a typical architect's website. And I think what sort of sometimes makes a typical architect's website is that it, it centers around the portfolio, mm. um, whereas your website tends to prioritize like intellectual property and expertise and <laughs> comms. So blog posts, leverage, talks mm. like you're doing everything as far as creating like longer form written content that sort of thing um eb do you want to maybe give like a little bit of um, a kind of a brief overview of sort of the different components of fulcrum's like output in terms of getting that expertise out into the world sure okay so i guess we're traditional and since we do have our website we have we use instagram linkedin Twitter to a lesser degree, um, but what differentiates us, I think, is that we also still believe in print publications. Mm. So we produce a journal each year. Um, Leverage was our last journal and we'll be releasing Commune in mid-September. We also produce short print brochures on our various um, capabilities and we're probably 
produce one of those a year. The most recent was on our social impact toolkit. Um, so that there's that's sort of our output. But what underpins it, underpins it all, I think, is this desire to communicate our values and to talk about the issues in Australian society that we think are, are important. And that's the lens through which we write about our work. We write about the things that are of interest to us at this point, the communities we work for. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So you're thinking sort of in similar to the projects in a way, you're trying to think about the bigger picture issues and address those with your with a lot of your, I guess, your marketing, but your writing, your your different multimedia stuff that you're doing. That's that's really interesting. And so is is it a fairly broad target audience in terms of who that content is destined for? Kind um, of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. I mean, we've obviously got our yeah, it is broad when I think about it. We've got our client base, which is fairly broad, as Emma described earlier. We've also got um architecture media like yourself who are interested yep. in the work that we're doing, other architects. But interestingly, we've now, unlike Coda, we've now got a whole lot of followers, and I'm thinking of Instagram in this sense, of people mm-hmm. who are just sort of interested in similar ideas, yep. I guess social impact sort of ideas, interested in what's happening within our First Nations communities, um, who are now you know, tapping into what we're doing and uh, participating in the conversation. And that, I think, differentiates us from what we were like at Coda, which was a much more traditional audience base in that sense of, you know, other architects at the time, probably very few clients following us on social media. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Emma, do you have any thoughts on, I suppose, how how this communication, this output kind of helps you to connect with the kind of clients that you're looking for or more ideal clients as as the practice evolves over time? Uh, yeah, I was thinking about this just in preparing myself mentally for our conversation, Dave. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, you know, it is hard because there's, you know, it's a bit of a dark art. There's no real, for me, I still, you know, the metrics around how, what impact it's having is quite, tricky Mm. um, or a bit invisible. So Mm. the the thing that I would say is that it makes, it personally creates clarity, I think, within our um, business around what it is that we're doing and where we see how we flesh out what's important to us and how we make connections with other people. So in the journal I'm thinking of specifically where we invite people to contribute or we commission people to contribute to that. Um, That's important. And then I think it helps us if we can give that to somebody. Let's say we've got somebody wants to meet with us and we go along and have a meeting and then afterwards we might give them a copy of our journal. Then I think it helps to kind of flesh out the who we are so that you can make sure there's not a misalignment because Mm. I think that fundamental to our business and our business model is the fact that we're quite into relationships Mm. and and so if we can have good relationships which are founded on the fact that we we both know who each other are as opposed to 
pretending, you know, going through a kind of a pretense, then we have a chance of having a better, deeper, richer relationship. And if you trust someone, you can do much better work because if that trust is there, then then there's the capacity to take necessary risks on projects that can push it forward. And um, One of the things that um, you wouldn't know about because it isn't something that we've really spoken about very much is this really interesting thing that we do where we have these lunches. We started them um, last year when we couldn't, we realised that we couldn't get out and about because of COVID and we weren't going to conferences. So we were lacking all of those conversations, those great conversations you have with people after you all go and see the same thing. So we decided that we would have these lunches, um, about eight people at a lunch, one of which um, is a friend of ours who is um, an Aboriginal guy who does this bare-faced stories. I don't know if you've heard of those. No, but he's no. like They're these um, they, people who have this particular skill in telling uh, a story that is true about themselves. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. in this, we would invite this group of people some of which we would never have met before because it was all based on this idea of like if you were going out for dinner after a conference and you end up at a table of people who, you know, might have a few things in common but you might not know. And the way that we started each one of those lunches, or we're still doing them, is that Ron will tell a story. And this most incredible thing happens in this moment of vulnerability where you're very intimate setting of listening to somebody tell their st this story and then it just open it sort of blows the top off no one is sitting around talking about their work and what they're doing and muscling up or selling their wares everyone is just talking about maybe the issue that came up for them in that story or whatever it was and it's been a really really excellent way to um, explore the idea of vulnerability in the workplace, actually. <laughs> like how can you have this kind of professional interaction but work on just being yourself or talking about things that you might not have an opportunity to talk about in a, you know, in a usual work setting? Mm. And I would say on that, it's, we deliberately don't talk it up on our social media or our website you know, it's meant to be this sort of sacred event where you can feel comfortable that we're not going to write up what was said and present it as a blog post afterwards. You know, yeah. it's what are yeah. they, they always say in the ACA Chatham House Rules, is that it? Mm. You know, where it sort of it stays within the walls. So that's why we don't, you don't hear much about it publicly. I think we might briefly mention it on our gig guide, but we don't talk about who's in the room or what was discussed. Interesting. So... That event, is that a little bit of an analogy for how you kind of approach things generally in terms of that idea of, I suppose there isn't a clear self-promotional angle on it. <laughs> it's just kind of, it's, it's, it's not about that. It's, it's kind of about featuring other people. It's about sharing stories. It's this interconnection. It, it's, it's, there's more sort of intangible aspects to it, it seems, where there isn't this clear... Uh, there isn't necessarily this clear uh, 
cause and effect in terms of we have to write about these particular issues because this will directly lead to A, B, and C. It's sort of a more, I don't know, what's... How do you how do you how do you sort of think about it? Because I feel like that's kind of part of the magic and the success of the journal and some of the other things that you're working on, and mm. why they work and why they build trust. And I think if you approached it a different way or a more kind of self interested way or a more sort of we're only going to do the we're only going to do it in a way that directly benefits us and showcases what we're doing, it probably wouldn't work nearly as well, right? Well, I think so, we would just be we if we did it that way, we all we would well a it wouldn't be true to who we are. But also it would just make us, it would make our collateral um, the same as all the other collateral, which is in a very noisy space of people trying to say that they're the best ones. Where actually what we really believe is that we can really only be as good as the clients we get and the collaborations we can make. Mm. So there's no point just talking about ourselves because mm. we t- we really are not operating in isolation. Mm. We're part of something much bigger. And I think that from a business perspective, what was, you know, that's where I feel like we've um, nailed it for now is that we have managed to create this small business that can work on complex problems and be connected. And that was the challenge in setting up the practice. Like how do we create this thing that means that we're not trying to get big, but we're also not closing ourselves off from from complexity? Yeah. So, and that comes about from relationships, I think. Right. And, and so the communication strategy that you're kind of following, um, just to drill in a little bit deeper on this idea of, uh, it's about the quality of the relationships and the people that you work with and collaborate with. What do you think it is about the approach that you're taking to the journal and talks and, and, and just this sort of mission of like adding value, sharing and insights, you're, you're just, is that what you're trying, is that why it's successful in a way that it's just this constant sort of mission to kind of add value and create something that will be of worth, you know, to stand out from that noise, right? Like what is it? about the content that you think really sticks with that audience and helps you to achieve those goals? Well, for me, I think the thing about the, you know, the content, if I think about the writing or I think about the journal or I think even about those lunches, it really comes from a position of curiosity, my Mm. own personal curiosity. Like I am only, I am going to write about something because I'm curious about it. So I might have an opinion about it. But I'm putting it out there because I want to hear what comes back. Mm, I'm yeah. not putting it out there because that's the end of the conversation. So <laughs> I, I guess I'm not then af- I'm not afraid to put my foot in my mouth. I mean, I'd like to do it less often than I do it, but I accept that that's a part of of this putting yourself out there mode. Um, yeah. And having an opinion, and I think mm. there's nothing. I think. Like we, the world needs more people with opinions, mm. <laughs> you know, really. Like it's okay. It, it, we don't have to be, we don't have to kind of be average. I think we can actually step to one side of that and and take some some risks, I guess. Um, but also I, th- I think, you know, as an architect, I feel like we really 
needed to take a risk because the actual formula of a traditional architectural practice isn't a great fit, actually. It, there's a lot of stuff, and I don't want to take the draw the whole conversation back into that. But, but I do think that you know it it was out of necessity that we felt like we needed to do that, and then we just had that opportunity. And I guess we also had the experience, you know, we'd been practicing for a long time to think, well, what are the things that that are important to us, and then how do we craft that into a business that can also use our professional skills. So, and I think, you know, I think that every person in our practice is a generous person. There isn't, you know, every person has no problem with recognising other people's contribution to the to their own successes. It comes at no expense to them. And I think that that's actually, that is not always the case, unfortunately. There are you know, a lot of people who hold on to stuff as though that's theirs and their identity. And for us, it's part of a much bigger, broader thing. So I really, you know, it it has been a lot about having the right people in the room as well. There are so many architecture practices that A, struggle to really connect with what are those values? A, B, what what are our opinions? C, how do we be generous? And D, what, how do we end up creating some output from that. So imagining that you two are putting fulcrum agency aside for a second, imagine maybe you're in my shoes and you're going to come into some architecture practices as consultants, as communication consultants, and we're going to begin to untangle this issue of how do you actually start to develop, uh, where do you begin in terms of formulating what is my point of view, what am I doing, What what are these values? Like maybe you'd have some interesting insights on, I guess, where to start thinking about that process. I mean, mm. go for it. <laughs> That's a good question. I think you've got to start thinking about what are the things that you're really interested in yourself? Like in your heart, what are the issues that motivate you? And, I mean, even if you're not an overly political person, I guess everyone in our the fulcrum agency and particularly Kieran and Emma is sort of quite politically motivated, so that given us a good framework to start with. But even if you're not, what are the things around you that you're interested in beyond your practice? What are the things that are happening in your community that you're happy about or you're not happy about? And how might you talk about those through your platform, through your various platforms? That's how I'd be approaching it because there is nothing more boring than an architect's Instagram page or web page where it's just photos of beautiful work in my view. You know, I think it's such an important profession um, and has such potential to improve the way we all live. You know, why not use it as a platform to talk about that? But you might not be an overly political person, so talk about the things immediately around you that are motivating you. That would be my advice. That's where I'd start. Mm. You know, what are the things that are currently making you tick beyond that particular project you're working on? I mean, I think it's true that that not, you know, not everyone is is politically motivated. Let's say, or you know, or if, or they have maybe more of a separation between their outside of work life and their work mm. life, or or something like that. Or maybe they design, um, you know, a particular in a a particular typology and it doesn't lend itself to being very 
you know, like if you're working in a corporate environment and the main thing that you do is you design high-rise buildings, well, then maybe I would say, you know, if it was me, I'd go, well, great, let's just talk about sustainability mm, and yeah. what's tech, what's tech material technology and what, what are the opportunities for improving mental health in workplaces because of the value of the design. I mean, I always, you know, I just think that the importance of the built environment and its impact on everyone is undeniable, but somehow architects don't have a strong voice actually in that space, really. And that's the thing that I think is interesting and is challenging. And not everyone is going to want to spend their energy fighting that fight. So I think that there's different you know, I now <clears throat> just accept that there's different players doing different things. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it might mean that there's a person who's just whose highest and best use is the documentation of buildings and they are not required to have an opinion on social yeah. issues. They equally could, but I'm just saying they don't need to. And there needs but we also need to to like actually allow people who want to use their voice to use it. And that's where, you know, and there are architects who do that really well and and are creating a shift. And I think that we, you know, we do see that and I think that they should be applauded for the work that they do. No, that's interesting. So I, I guess people would identify with this, am I in that group that doesn't have or need to have that that opinion or am I, and I'm just not, using it um i think uh it's it's interesting what do you think that there's just as bright a future for the practice who maybe maybe not the project manager or the documentation person or 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 whatever but where the director where the team as a whole doesn't have a strong point of view on on really anything right They're, they're quite conservative in terms of holding back and separating that personal belief system or that professional belief system from the practice, from the business. Um, I sort of feel like that's a, that's becoming a more challenging business mm. to to be relevant and to find salience amongst potential clients and in the market than 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 in the past. Would would, would you kind of agree with that? I guess I guess in a way you do because of mm. your approach you can kind of see the well, evidence of it. But I would say that there's a space for those practices, but I think that their capacity to do good work is limited. Because I think it goes back to the relationship, you know, like what's the kind of client they're going to to um, attract and what's the kind of conversation that they're going to have together and what's the kind of brief they're going to, and it's going to be pretty average. Mm. Yeah. But if you want to do good work, I think you have to have a position and I think when you have a position, you're going to attract someone. It's like any relationship. You know, you, you need the right pairing and I just don't think you can have that if you play all your cards so close to your chest. I do think that there's, you know, to your point before, Dave, I think there is a challenge and an opportunity for um, practices, younger practices who are wanting to get into this space of having an a you know, a position and a, an opinion and how to do that and that and the kind of riskiness, you know, they're young in the profession, they 
live in a small town. I mean, I don't know, whatever the combination of challenges mm. might be that might th- make them feel that they need to be a little bit more reserved in that. And my advice is that they should still develop their position um, and they should still have an opinion, but they should just go softly and that they should perhaps have an external person who might read some of their collateral before it goes out or mm. something like that just to get that external opinion to say, could this be read incorrectly or how could this be read? But that, you know, I agree with Emma's point. We're all part of a community. doesn't matter what you do. And you, in terms of creating a relevance for architects in in our community and in our built environment, the more we celebrate the, um, the whole success of architecture, the more work that will be created for all of us because we're going to have more relevance. And that's where that basic, that is the most basic form of generosity every architect can extend to every other architect Mm. because the more we can celebrate our relevance, the more work we will end up Mm. with. Mm. What's the process that a piece of content goes through for you for you guys? Now, uh, you, Emma, you touched on this point of it's an exercise in kind of curiosity and clarifying your thinking. And I think those are two really important points because it's sometimes difficult to find that motivation to make the effort, um, particularly, you know, writing isn't easy. Um, preparing a talk isn't easy <laughs> and it's, it's hard and it's very challenging work. And so you have, I guess it's sort of that driver is that feeling of I'm going to, I'm going to have develop a better understanding of my own thinking by doing this, which is not necessarily something that an architect would usually think about when it comes to, you know, maybe I've decided for myself that I'm going to start a blog and write a post once a month or something like that, or start a journal. Um, it seems like a useful mindset in terms of your motivation for doing it. Um, is, and, and EB, is this sort of, in terms of having multiple people on the team contributing stuff to the journal, is it about each person sort of finding their own individual motivation for doing that? Or, or how do you create a structure that is helpful in terms of getting a variety of different personalities to all take on this challenge of, exploring their own minds and their own expertise and experiences and creating content because it's a difficult Mm. thing for one person to do, let alone to sort of bring in several voices. Mm. Um, Are there any tricks or tips that you've kind of picked up (laughs) um, in terms of is it just about going, I need an article by 5 p.m. Friday or you get to spend it all? Yeah, there's a bit of that. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Um, Look, in terms of the journal, Emma and I sit on sort of we form the editorial committee with sort of Kieran on the periphery yeah. um, and we do it in collaboration with Block Branding. So Mark Braddock, who's the director at Block Branding, he always, we sort of come up with the ideas and then he tells us whether they're good or not, um, So, which is really useful, I think. Yeah. Um, so in terms of that, and then we go out, we look at people who are doing things across Australia within our immediate community in Fremantle or, you know, in Sydney or wherever who are doing interesting things. And then we go out to them with a pitch um, to write something or to photograph something or to produce a piece of art for us, for the journal. So that's how the journal operates. But within our own practice, it has taken a little bit of time for people to feel like they have some ownership over our comms. Um, 
our lots of our, you know, as I said, we don't do the sorts of projects where we send a photographer to photograph it at the end the way we did with um, Coda. Yeah. So now for content, I'm reliant on the people in our office who travel up north to site visits, for consultation, et cetera, to take to produce content for me. And finally, after two years, I'm getting some amazing stuff where people, you know, I posted something, Brad sent me through this image last week. He was in Newman. Normally when he's got some downtime on site, he'll go to the dome because it's got good Wi-Fi and, you know, barely, you know, drinkable coffee. But, you know, so he does that. But he couldn't do that because the dome was shut. So he went to the top of the hill where he could get Wi-Fi and he took this photo of Newman and he's like, oh, this might not be good enough, but, you know, maybe you can do something with it. I was like, this is fantastic. This is showing the reality of your day and talking about the communities in which we work. So, you know, people are really at the the people in our office are really starting to think about the way in which they can assist me with their job, and that's just come through just repeating all the time. Um, you know, take some photos for me. I can stick a filter on it. Don't worry if you know you think you're not a good photographer. Just take the photo and or get the testimonial from the person in the community and I can do something with it. I mean, that's mm. that's the good thing about having me in the practice is that I do have the skills to turn that into something. But the other thing that works really well em, in terms of the writing is that I guess, and this is over several years, this is developed into a sort of shorthand, is this backwards. We do a lot of backwards and forwards. So yeah. an article might actually start with bullet points and yep. a couple of sentences and then I'll send it to Emma. She'll yep. try a few things, send it back, and it might go backwards and forwards five or six times before um, before it, we decide it's um, a finished. And we, and we always have a, um, an idea about where we want to publish it mm. in the beginning and then we think about what we could do with that later. Mm. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's been a really, for me, that's been a really good process because I'm really not a very, I'm not a, nat, I wouldn't consider myself to be a natural writer. I find it quite difficult um, and I often am, feel a little bit insecure about the tone or, you know, whether, is what I'm saying even interesting, you know. Mm. So it really helps me to go backwards and forwards and to have that collaborative project process. And um, and that's been the same at the moment. We are, as Emma said, we're just in the final throes of this journal that's coming out um, in September. And Kieran is tasked with writing an article for the journal and he has left it so late. It's been outrageous. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as a result, you know, there's been quite a lot of time pressure and the whole weekend was spent with him and I emailing each other backwards and forwards in this same process of, of editing and content and editing and content. And, yeah, it's a much better way to write, actually, I think. Mm. Mm. And I really enjoy it. Mm. You know, well, I, really, I, do too, I like it. And neither of us feel offended or precious about mm. what we've done. You just, the other person makes yeah. the other person sound better. And eventually I'm building up that sort of relationship with other people in the practice too so that they don't feel overwhelmed by the idea of writing something, you know, by their grammar or things like that, you know. That's that's where I can come in because that's my skill set. Their skill set is generating the ideas. 
Yeah. You know, and I think it's it's good. I will say on the journal, you know, lots of people say to us, oh, this, you know, it must cost you a fortune. And and it sort of does, but it gives us six to, I reckon, six to eight months of content for our website and for our socials that we wouldn't have otherwise. You know, so we publish that journal and it goes out to say 500 people on our mailing list, four to 500 sort of growing at the moment. Um, but then we repurpose that. Yeah, that that content for months to come and that's you know it's fantastic it makes my job really easy so for the next few months whilst we're planning the next one interesting so just if you could clarify the structure there so the journal is the journal the sort of the large publication that you produce is that is that annually twice a year what the it's last annual. one was leverage okay so the initial ambition was to be twice a year but we did it and it's a huge yep. amount of work and it's really costly so it oh. just makes sense to do it annually. Yeah. Um, okay. Last year we brought it out just before Christmas, but that kind of felt too compressed. You know, it was sort of people are super busy um, at that time of year. So this year we brought it forward. We'll be releasing it in September. Yeah. Um, and then from that we'll have, you know, as I said, minimum six months' worth of content where I will feed that the the articles that were in that journal out through social media um, for yeah. months to come to an entirely new audience. Yeah, really interesting. And so the the sort of sh- the individual pieces that end up on the website. Uh, yeah. Di- so are those kind of produced for the 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 annual journal, and then you sort of drip feed them out over the coming months. Yeah. And then you, in between that, you sort of splice in. Uh, more real-time project yeah. updates and kind of correspondence from yeah. your field reporters in Correct. Newman and, and elsewhere. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, that's Does exactly it, how we work. I can yeah. see actually that's a really good framework for actually getting things done in terms of it all building up to this really important and quite scary deadline around mm. this journal being ready versus this more ongoing, never-ending, continuous, every four weeks we need a blog post Mm. model that's sort of a more traditional way of looking at how you would start going about creating this content. That's right. And I've always found that those little continual processes, I don't think they gel well with architects. We tend to like a big scary deadline, like portfolio, we hand it in and then we get to Mm -hmm. have a couple months off. There's this really precise point in time that we can handle that stress and that build up, but we know that that's when it ends. And Mm, I can almost envisage that you can kind Mm. of that it brings everyone together <laughs> around this clear point in time, which is a really interesting way of approaching mm. it. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So, okay, so it's it almost feels like you're developing a a media company as much as uh, an architecture pra- <laughs> an architecture practice or a consultancy. <laughs> like in a in a in a sense, like there is there is so much. Um, so much work and effort that's going into that and the way that you're approaching it is so interesting. Um, yeah, it's very, I mean, very I think it's true. I mean, you would know better because of all the conversations you have, Dave, but I think it's unusual for such a small architectural business to have a communications person in the business three days a week. Like to, you know, there's only, there's nine of us and one of those people is a comms person. It seems like that's quite a lot. Um, but I think that that is because we really do value the communications for all the reasons that we've talked about in terms of establishing ourselves and the relationships. And 
as for, you know, developing a media company, I don't think that that's true, although we do um, enjoy it. You know, em- and Emma and I do sometimes think, oh, this would be so great. You know, imagine if we could offer this service to another practice that, you know, how would they mm. tackle this? Because it's another problem, you know, and it's complex and it's about how it's about all the things that you've identified, you know, what are the, the practices core values? How do they want to talk about them? What would it, you know, I think it's, I get a lot, I really get energised by that because I think everyone does have a story to tell at, you mm. know, at yeah. some level. I see it happening a lot more in larger practices. Like um, like if you go to, say, like Hassel's website or something, you know, what mm. you would have traditionally seen on the homepage of a firm like that would have been a big skyscraper. Mm. Uh, now you see opinions, podcasts, mm. conversations, you know, yeah, community, right. like mm. the taglines are very different and you feel like you're on, you know, vice.com or something looking or, <laughs> you know, you feel like you're looking at an editorial dashboard. It's really quite a different experience to what you'd expect but you're right it hasn't necessarily filtered down to the smaller practices because Mm -hmm. it's harder to have that communications expertise um at that scale whereas when you get a bit bigger you get that it's expensive Mm. eb you're too expensive but but what i will say because these people say this to me all the time like how can they afford to have and i think but i am you know by me doing it i'm less expensive than a director and it frees up them to do other stuff I mean, Kieran and Emma could not be producing the work they do, the articles no. and things, if I wasn't there because it's too time-consuming for them and they need to be doing more, not more important things, but other things to build the business. So, But also you know. we don't spend, we made a really conscious choice that we weren't going to do open tenders because yep. they're too expensive. So we've really, like we're in the same way. So really we have a budget in a, in another traditional practice they might spend like 10 or twenty thousand dollars a month on mm. submissions that they're never mm. going to win that a direct yeah. that a senior staff person is doing yeah and I just crazy. So we we really um, you know we've really resisted that and sometimes we'll see a project and we think oh should we do it and then we just like no nah. <laughs> it's an open tender we're just not going to do it because that's going to cost us five or ten thousand dollars to do and we could be spending that money on other comms mm. wow do you think that the other comms are like okay that's just i didn't realize that you weren't doing any of that stuff um that's really interesting so do you think that um the other comms does it sort of introduce you to a diff does it if you've got a client that's sort of doing those open tenders and those competitions and stuff like that, are they the same client that you can also connect with and develop a relationship with through your other comms? Or is it like there's a different kind of client that doesn't approach how they procure work that way and that's who we're going for? Are they ever the same person? I it's guess it's different kind of, because so yeah. like those open tenders would be like fantastic, you know, community buildings for um, local governments, for example. Yeah. Like we're just not going to get those because we we don't do the tenders. But the yeah. reason we don't do the tenders is because we because that's become a race to the bottom on fees. So yeah. it doesn't matter how good you know the practice is, it's it's very very difficult to win those. Um, and so I think we therefore are attracting different clients because we we're not getting them through those traditional ways. 
typically. And we rely a lot on our relationships. So our best client is going to be a client we've already had. Mm. That's our hope because that's, you know, that's that trust that's being built up. Interesting. Interesting. So does the content also serve a really useful function in that sense in terms of maintaining that relationship mm. with those existing clients as well and, and continuing to, to build it? And do your, are the biggest fans of your output and your work sometimes clients you've worked with on previous projects? And has it been helpful in terms of kind of continuing to maintain that relationship if that, if that repeat business or that expanding business as one client that has many issues starts to constantly kind of re-invite you to get involved in things. Mm. Um, yeah, does, I so think the content so. plays a role in that as well. Sure. Okay. If you think, you know, if you might not have touched base with someone for a few months and then you send them the journal, you know, we keep them, we keep a really tight database. You know, I spend quite a lot of time working with all the staff in the office to make sure that the database is really um, as good as it can be. Um yeah, and, you know, if you haven't spoken to somebody for 12 months or whatever and then our journal lands on their desk, you know, it puts us front of mind again. And even if they don't have any work on the books, we're still front of mind. There may A recommendation may come from that. So, yeah, I think yeah. it's really, really important. Or if you're working, say, for a university, it, that's a complex organisation. So you might be in there doing one small piece of work but actually they might realize that you would might be appropriate for a bigger or different alternate piece of work through that mm. com stuff mm. yep I, I guess final thing in terms of takeaways for small emerging practices um in terms of how how they can start to possibly think about i feel like this conversation has been a good kind of test drive to sort of for them to sort of see, does that feel like a direction that like, we could see ourselves going in? Um, and I guess where would a practice kind of begin? We had the questions about how you might start developing that opinion, but what what is there for them to weigh up in terms of if they feel like the direction they're heading is maybe not aligning with, um, I guess, a, a sense of purpose or a calling in terms of what they're doing or an issue that they care really passionately about? Um what what would the two of you kind of had to have to offer them or or a message to them in terms of what how they might like to think about sort of reflecting on where they're at and and, and working out whether sort of starting to go more in that more consultative or strategic direction might be something that could be helpful for them yeah i mean that could be helpful but i think that first of all i think if you have a feeling that there's a misalignment between the trajectory of your business and your values, then I think that um, it's important to start to articulate those values and to get that out there so that you start attracting the right clients. So I would say that, you know, two things that come to mind um, would be, one would be to get into some kind of um, connection with where you want to go is that's but through a kind of pro bono situation or through a community organization where you don't necessarily come in as the architect looking for the building to be the solution to the problem but you're just coming in to understand a little bit more about this area that you're interested in 
And then the other thing I would suggest is writing. And even um, if you were writing and you just post that onto LinkedIn would seem to be like a good place where you could start to just create, put it out there and see what comes back because you can never, no one will ever give you an opportunity if you don't reveal what it is that you're after. So I think you do have to move into that space of being a little bit more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I think you also need to move into the space without feeling like the expectation is that you're an expert. You're moving Mm -hmm. into the space to become more expert as you go along, but you're really moving in there to learn. And if you can go in there with a bit of humility, then I think you can actually start to get that out. And I do think it is liberating to think of the skills of the architect as being beyond that of just the delivery of a building, but to think of the skills of the architect being that of problem solving. So if we can solve problems and not get caught up in the building thing, then there's many, many things that we can do. We can kind of get involved in lots of different challenges in the built environment. That That is what I would say to that. What about you, yep. M? Look, I think <clears throat> I guess my one of my key takeaways from having worked with Emma and Kieran for a long time and also being involved with the ACA is say yes to opportunities join committees. You know, Emma and Kieran have always been very generous in their time in joining committees. If I look at other young practices that I admire, like Kate Fitzgerald from Whispering Smith, you know, she she went out and she joined the ACA um, and uses that as a platform to voice some of her opinions. And when you do that, you know, you build your confidence. You know, you find you a network. network of people. You build, yeah, yeah, that's right. You find a network of people and you build your confidence in that space. So say, say yes to things, look for opportunities. Um, the other thing I think, you know, if you wanted to start sort of changing up your Instagram posts or doing some writing for LinkedIn, and this is something I do, I still do, is have a look and identify those people on those platforms that you like their style of writing and think about why you like it. And kind of in a way, I mean, it feels wrong. Try try and emulate it in a way. So I've got this great example. There's this shop in Fremantle called Kate and Abel and there's this girl, Kate Hewlett, who um, runs the shop and she has this fantastic Instagram account where she talks not she talks about the shop but she does it in a really clever way where she ties it into the social issues she's interested in. And I have this joke with a friend of mine who also works with in architectural comms and we say, what would Kate say? And sometimes if I'm thinking about or if I've, you know, I've got this picture that I want to post on Fulcrum's Instagram account and I'm thinking, mm, what am I going to say about this? this is a bit random. Um, I think what would Kate say? And it often comes to me the right thing to say because I think about it through her lens and she's just really clever and she can write these long, witty but really interesting posts that say something mm. um, about society and, it, you know, and she might just be showing that a picture of a banana stand in her practice, in her shop. You know, it's so, so funny. You know, you, I didn't know that you did that, but yeah. I, I think that her um, posts are one of the only ones where I will actually read the whole post because they're totally. always so interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah mm. they are. So I, it goes through my head. What will Kate say? So find your Kate, and you know, and and just yeah, 
think about it through that lens. Yeah, I mean, such good advice to finish on for both of you. I think there's two things that I notice architects do quite a lot, even, you know, practices I work with from time to time, which is they'll go, I have some fundamental issue with email marketing or Instagram or something because the only thing that comes to mind from them is all the examples they don't like. I hate the way people post on LinkedIn. I hate. Mm-hmm. I, I ignore all the newsletters I get in my email inbox, mm-hmm. but they very rarely focus in on those examples that they truly like and truly engage with. And I read that caption, or I always I turn on notifications for that person. I want to see their stuff so much. So there mm-hmm. are examples. So looking for those examples is great. And Emma, saying that you touched on was this idea of not coming out needing to be the expert and. So many people feel that need to come out and be the expert. And because they can't yet, they decide I'm going to wait a couple of years until I've got everything I need to, until I've got examples of my expertise I can show further down the track. They're reluctant to be in that vulnerable position where I don't have anything to show yet. Um, I'm figuring things out. Uh, And like that's an uncomfortable position to be in as a business that's, selling services to people and trying to instill that sense of confidence that Mm. you can hire me and even going through a transition from very confident as a more traditional architect into an area that I'm less confident in, embracing that vulnerability might be really something that you need to kind of come to terms with, right? Mm. Um, Yeah, I think so. But how? just maybe just to finish off that idea of how do you, how do you not be the expert? Like that, just in the simplest sense, like what what is that mindset to be in when it when it comes to going online, going into this public domain? Maybe it isn't necessarily even just online. Maybe it is committees, public spaces, with this idea of an intent of this is something that I want to do or I want to contribute to or I want to work on. But from being the architect, from being seeing yourself as the expert into now I'm kind of not the expert, but I'm developing these new things. How how do you kind of be how do you not be the expert um, as a, as an architect? Well, I think it's um, it's listening. That's the first thing I think to go in, and that's something definitely um, that we've learned through working with communities. Uh, and then I think it is about being a collaborator. So I think what the really the good skill um, of an architect is not being an expert, but being very clever in recognising who's better than you and who can do what job the best and bringing that team together. I mean, that is the that is where there's a, a kind of design oversight. It's like the designing of the team, let's say, um, that allows you, you can exist in that environment without being an expert because you're drawing your skill is to draw on the experts to get what you can for the project not for yourself but for the project and in the process of immersing yourself in the team you learn so I think that that is a space and I agree with you Dave I think that that's a very typical um, scenario is for people to resist stepping forward because they're not an expert and I think it is very common um for women to do that, mm. to have a real nervousness about not wanting to actually look as though they're not across what's happening. And mm. I think if I, um, you know, if I compare myself with Kieran, Kieran has no problem just pretending he's across it all and I <laughs> so would just be much it. more nervous. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and I think, you know, you need more of that. You need more of that kind of stepping into that space and just saying, well, actually, it, I trust that my fundamental skills in communication and listening yeah. are going to allow for learning here because I will be able to draw out where there's the pieces of gold and expertise coming from this team that will be able to push us forward. So it's not a solo pursuit. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation, Dave. Thank you. It was great. Well, that was my conversation with Emma Williamson and Emma Brain from The Fulcrum Agency. If you'd like to learn more about The Fulcrum Agency, you can visit thefulcrum.agency or follow the practice on Instagram at thefulcrum.agency. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please make sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every other week. It also helps other architects to find the show and benefit from these conversations. So, I really appreciate it when you subscribe in your podcast app. If you've got any feedback or questions from this episode, you can get in touch at dave at vanityprojects.com. I like hearing from you. And if you'd like to learn more about me, Dave Sharp, you can visit vanityprojects.com to check out my blog, join over 5,000 other architects on my email list who receive weekly emails, or learn more about my marketing coaching services for architects and book a free 15-minute call to discuss your situation and how I can help you. So, that's all for this episode and I'll see you next time.